Okay. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Riccardo Crescenzi. Um, I am a professor of economic geography here at the LSE, and I will be your host uh, here uh, tonight. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome you all uh, to this LSE Department of Geography and Environment uh, public lecture. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to welcome Professor uh, Ricardo Hausmann at the LSE. Um, if you are using Twitter, uh, the hashtag is LSE Hausmann. So please tweet uh, as much as you like. Uh, the event uh, is being audio and video recorded. Uh, the recording will be available on the LSE events channels uh, for you to download and listen uh, to the podcast if you wish. So introducing a speaker uh, like uh, Ricardo Hausmann is not an easy task at all. Um, if I were to list all his scholarly and uh, policy achievements, this would take an entire evening. Uh, you can check uh, his Wikipedia entry uh, if you don't trust me. Uh, so, Ricardo Hausmann is director of the Ava Center for International Development and professor of the practice of economic development at the Kennedy School of Government. Previously, he served as the first chief economist uh, of the Inter-American Development Bank where he created uh, the research division. He has served as Minister of Planning of Venezuela and as a member of the board in the Central Bank of Venezuela. He also served as chair of the IMF World Bank Development Committee. He has advised governments on growth and development in over 40, this is the official record, uh, developing countries. Uh, he has authored uh, a large number of uh, uh, highly successful and hugely cited publications, uh, and introduced new ideas and concepts in the field of economic development and growth. Concepts like self-discovery and growth diagnostic in his work with Danny Roderick uh, are, just to name a few, are now household names uh, in the field and beyond, as many of our students can testify. The concept of product space and economic complexity powerful conceptual and empirical tools for the understanding of the process of structural transformation and proven incredibly successful to shed new light on developmental bottlenecks and technological capabilities of developing countries. In today's talk, Ricardo will bring us at the very center of the debates on the determinants of economic development. And we will discuss the importance of know-how and its circulation across the globe, and the sense of us in creating the conditions to support the creation and absorption of technology, and ultimately to foster economic development. Ricardo, thank you very much. The floor is yours. Yeah, well, thank you, Ricardo, for this um, kind invitation. Is this working? Yes? No? No? Hello? Hello? Who? Now, there we go. Okay, so thank you, Ricardo, for this very kind um, invitation. It's uh, great to be back in, at LSE and, and to have the opportunity to share with you a, a few thoughts on, on sort of like the, the underlying mechanics of, of development and, and some of the issues that uh, I'll, I'll make some cheap shots to some of the very popular ideas in development that I think are wrong. Uh, but uh, I'll try to spend most of my time being constructive and, and generating a framework that might, um, might be useful. So thank you, Ricardo, for, for the invitation. Thank you all for coming. Uh, 
I wanted to say that there is no bad Ricardos in this world. So, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, let me see. Um, the question of why are countries rich and countries poor is a question that was addressed by Adam Smith at the beginning of uh, the economics profession. And um, when, when he wrote uh, his book, The Richest Country in the World was apparently the Netherlands. It was about four times richer than the poorest countries in the world. So that was a gap of four to one. If you look at the World Development Indicators, the poorest country in the world by some metric is Malawi. If you multiply by four the income per capita of Malawi, you get to Haiti. Haiti is by far the poorest country in the Americas. If you multiply by four the income per capita of Haiti, you get to Morocco. And if you multiply by four the income per capita of Morocco, you get to Poland or Argentina. And if you multiply by four the income per capita of Poland, you get to Singapore. So a problem that was a problem of, say, four to one, it was a, became a problem of something like 256 to one. Okay, so, so it means that the problem doesn't go away by reading Adam Smith. <laughs> so, so, so the puzzle remains. And, and we know a little bit, thanks to the work of um, fantastic uh, British economists uh, like Angus Madison, uh, that the this is due to the fact that the incomes per capita were really, really stable for an amazingly long time, something we call the Malthusian trap, until very recently, like two centuries ago, and so it looks like a hockey stick. But if you zoom into the hockey stick, this is from the year zero to 2000, what you see is this is a phenomenon that seemed to have happened much more quickly in some parts of the world than in other parts of the world, so that if you, if you measured income differences here, they were small, but uh, they become huge in the present. So that's what we call the great divergence. Uh, and so one way to ask the question of, of, of this two gap of 256 to 1 is to ask yourself uh, why things are done this way in parts of the world when they could be doing, done this way. So this is a simple way of asking the question, why is it that you can generate so much more output per capita in some parts of the world than in other parts of the world. So why do you do things this way if you could do things this way? That's one way of asking the question. And, and you know, uh, the neoclassical story uh, has an answer to that question. Uh, and the answer to that question involves some characters. You know, all stories have some characters. And uh, the characters of the story are first capital. Right? This guy here is working with much more capital. Right? He might be working also with much more land. Uh, now, capital is, a, is an interesting thing. If uh, Economists get taught about capital in the first lecture, in the first year or something like that, and then they forget what it means. But you know, it, as a good sort of like cocktail conversation, ask people, you know, what is capital? And ask a professor, what is capital? You say, well, you know, it's, um, well, it's machines and equipment and maybe, uh, you know, um, construction. And, and then you ask them, and why do you measure it in dollars? So why, why do we call it capital markets of the people who lend you money? And sort of like the, the fundamental idea here, which is, was in somebody's footnote, in a footnote in some textbook, 
was that if you assume capital is essentially old production that can be used to produce today, something that was produced in the past that you can use to produce today. Uh, and you can think of it as money if you assume that markets are complete. So that whatever you need, you could buy. So in the end, capital is old production, but it would be just amount, an amount of money if, if markets were complete. So um, it's going to come a little bit in explaining. Uh, then there's human capital. And human capital, we have all agreed for a long time that it was uh, what, whatever Barrow Lee measured as years of schooling. And for the last uh, 20 years or now, people have been uh, emphasizing uh, that it's not just years of schooling, it's also the quality of schooling and the proper way of measuring the quality of schooling is through these standardized PISA exams, okay? So that's the second character. The first character is sort of like capital, which is money, except that you have to assume that markets are complete, and human capital, which is essentially sort of like quality-adjusted education. And then there is technology, which is whatever was, it's kind of like a none of the above category. So, so there's technology. So, um, uh, and interestingly, if you split the world in this way, uh, you can accumulate capital, you can accumulate human capital. That doesn't do a very good job at explaining growth in the world. So growth in the world is explained a little bit by this none of the above category we call technology, something else, okay? So that's how, so, so a neoclassical economist would come back and say, this guy is working with less land than this guy, he's working with less capital than this guy, he probably went to school less than this guy, and as a consequence, he's less productive. The, the implication is that, for example, if you gave him money, he would buy maybe this tractor. But if he bought this tractor, it doesn't mean that there's nearby anybody to repair it if it breaks down, et cetera, et cetera that uh, the whole ecosystem on, on which this quote-unquote technology lives is not, is not very well specified. So anyway, so let me just emphasize now a little bit how much you know, people have emphasized schooling as a critical input to production, and we put it in typically, for those of you who study economics, you put it as, as in the production function together with capital and so on. Let me just show you something to disabuse you of the idea that schooling is this uh, incredibly powerful thing that causes development and growth. Uh, this is the relationship between GDP per capita and years of schooling calculated for like 140 countries. So it says that poor countries have low schooling, rich countries have more schooling. You might want to say Consequently, that obviously, if poor countries became more educated, they would become richer. They would move up that, that uh, blue line, right? So the, um, I didn't tell you that this was empirically calculated for the year 1970. So now if I recalculate it for the year 2010, um, what do you think I'm going to find? Well, you obviously would realize that 2010 is 40 years after 1970. So by 2010, there is much better technology. 
So the production function, if you think of this as a bit of the inverse of a production function, it should have shifted. Now, with the same amount of education and better computers, better cell phones, better uh, antibiotics, better whatever you want, this thing should have shifted to the right, right? So with the same education and technology that is 40 years more advanced, you should be able to generate more output. So when I calculate it for 2010, I get the opposite. This is a dramatic shift. By the way, it's sort of like happening everywhere. Everybody went to school. So everybody moved up, but they didn't move to the right along the slope of the blue line, which is what you might have expected for it to happen, that you move to the right, that is you become richer, GDP per capita goes up. Uh, but it, that's not what happened. People went to school and that's, that's the end of it. Let me show you another way to think of this as a production function. So this is a trick graph, okay? This graph shows the relationship between energy per capita and GDP per capita. And I have a bunch of countries there. I have Peru, Chile, Korea, and the UK. And, you know, it's interesting that all these countries sort of like, and, and for many years, right? All these countries sort of like align along something that looks almost like a straight line. So independent of, tell me your GDP per capita, I'm going to guess your energy consumption. Tell me your energy consumption, I'm going to try to guess your GDP per capita, and I'm not going to be far by much. You agree? So it's kind of like a technical relationship, you might say that. No? Energy consumption, GDP per capita. Interesting that Korea and the UK diverge because Korea probably remained more of a manufacturing place. The UK became more of a service place. So there's some difference in energy intensities over there at the top. But you know, there's a tight relationship. Tell me how, how rich you are. I'll tell you how much energy you use or vice versa, right? So let me just show you the same graph, but for education. Okay, for education, it looks like this. Okay, so let me compare countries, not at a certain point in time, but at a certain level of schooling. And let me take it to be seven years of schooling. So at seven years of schooling, eh, the first country is Ghana, had an income per capita of 1,000. The next one is Thailand. It had an income per capita almost seven times larger. The next one is Mexico. It had an income per capita about 10 times larger. And the next one is France. It had an income per capita 21 times larger. Whatever it is that is making France 20 times richer than Ghana is not the fact that people spend more years in school. By the way, if you look at the statistics for average years of schooling of the labor force in Europe in 1960, they were amazingly low. I did some numbers for Turkey. In Turkey today, it has dramatically more education, urbanization, lower fertility rates, all sociodemographic indicators than, say, the Netherlands had in 1960. And the Netherlands, in 1960, using super old technologies, was able to produce twice the output per capita than Turkey is able to produce today. Okay? So just... This is just, this is part of it where I say, what are the things that we might have overemphasized as being super critical to the development process where the data doesn't seem to back it up, okay? So, um, uh, so the, 
we are left with this uh, third character, which is technology. And I, I'm going to ask myself, why did this tractor, this thing that was in the second picture, not diffuse to, to the first picture? And sort of like the standard answer these days is that technology doesn't diffuse because institutions are lousy. That uh, technology would have sort of like a natural tendency to move around, but if you don't have the right institutions, it cannot move around. So um, this very popular book, Why Nations Fail, makes exactly this point. It says the secret of growth is technology, but technology doesn't diffuse because institutions are not appropriate. Okay. So the book starts with um, the two Nogales, Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora. And it says, you know, Nogales, Sonora is poor, Nogales, Arizona is rich. What could possibly be the difference? It has to be institutions. It, what the book didn't emphasize was the fact that if you look within Mexico, you can go to a place like Guerrero, the state of Guerrero. It has the, one of the second lowest productivity per worker in, in Mexico. These are productivities per worker. It has a productivity per worker like that of, say, Honduras. If you multiply by two the productivity of Guerrero, you get to the state of Sinaloa. It has a productivity, say, like that of Jamaica. If you multiply by two the state of Sinaloa, you get to the state of Guanajuato, which has a productivity like that of Malaysia. And if you multiply by two the state of Guanajuato, you get to the state of Nuevo León, which has a productivity slightly higher than that of Korea. Okay, so with the same legal framework, the same federal judicial system, the same political representation system, the same language and the same religion, the same exchange rate, the same interest rate, the same macroeconomic setup, you get kind of like a Honduras and a Korea. So at least, you know, I don't know, I find that puzzling. I don't know if you share my puzzle, that if it were uh, about these national differences that would explain this Nogales, Arizona, Nogales, Sonora, you would not have expected to find a factor of eight difference uh, within a country under some relatively similar uh, uh, treatment. So my, my hypothesis is that technology does not diffuse, not because of institutions, not because of a third factor, but technology does not diffuse because of the nature of technology itself. Technology itself explains why it doesn't diffuse. Okay, that's my claim, okay? But in order to back up my claim, I have to be a little bit more specific because economists love, we love, mea culpa, we love to use fuzzy words. We should have been diplomats because diplomats are in the business of hiding disagreement so that they can sign the communiques and each one goes home interpreting whatever they want. And the two favorite words in economics are institutions and technology because no one knows what the hell they mean, and everybody is in agreement, okay? So, I'm going to be a little bit more precise by what I mean by technology. I'm gonna say that technology is really three things, not one thing, or it's the conflation of three things, or three, or, or one thing that has three instantiations, three ontologies, if you want. The first one is that technology is tools. 
tools are things that exist in, in physical space, etc. You might call this embodied knowledge. That is the knowledge of making this thing, of this uh, thing. What do you call these things? Huh? A drone. A drone, okay. So the drone, the knowledge, if you want to use a drone, you don't need to know how to make the drone. The knowledge of how to make the drone is in the drone. You just need to use it, right? So, so it's tools. It is also codes, protocols, recipes, how to do manuals. We call that codified knowledge. In some sense, technology is knowledge, but knowledge that takes three, on, three ontologies, three kinds of existence. Tools, codes, and then something else. But if the problem was just tools and codes, we would all here create an NGO that would put the tools in a container and ship it to Malawi, right? And we would put the codes on the web and make them globally available. And by shipping the stuff and making it globally available through the web, we would have achieved equal access to technology, and as a consequence, the world would be all equal and the same. And this gap of 256 to 1 would have disappeared. But uh, the problem is that technology is really three things. And the third thing you figure out by asking yourself the question, what do you do when your tooth hurts? And you might be tempted in this world of do-it-yourself to download an article from the web and ask your significant other to fix the problem for you. But you're unlikely to do that. You are likely to go to a dentist. And the dentist is a guy who, or, or a woman who uses tools. He uses tools. He follows protocols. But he mixes the tools and the protocols with something else that you and I don't have. Something that allows him to see in your mouth and see things that you and I don't see. And it allows him to move his hands in ways you and I don't know how to move our hands with those tools. And that extra thing is something we call know-how. Or you might want to call it tacit knowledge. In any case, it is something that exists only in brains. You know, so know-how exists only in brains. So tools might be exist in physical space. Codes might exist in paper or on the web. Know-how only exists in brains in no other shape or form. You, know, you can talk to Rafa Nadal all you want about how to play tennis. I doubt that your game will improve. Because it is his brain's ability to figure out where the ball is going to bounce, with what spin it's going to come up, with etc. that he doesn't even know and he cannot articulate. So, you know, Michael Polanyi that came up with the term tacit knowledge, you know, it put it in saying, you know more than you can say. That is, you don't really know. Your brain does. That is, Rafa Nadal starts running after the ball and before he can rationalize, it, it, the game is too quick for him to be thinking about it. You know, it's, it's an automatic pilot. And it's this automatic pilot component that is a fundamental component of, of technology. It's what allows a dentist to be a dentist. And the problem with modern technology is that it is not just one person with know-how. It is a team. 
it is teams of people with complementary know-how that have to come together to implement the technology. So you might say that this guy knows how to fly a plane. But actually, if you want to fly a commercial plane, you need these people. A person doesn't fly a commercial plane, a team flies a commercial plane. A team with many different skills, many different know-hows that have to come together to, make a, the te to implement that technology. So I'm going to emphasize a different dimension of something you might say, well, know-how, human capital. But it's going to be very different because the way you measure human capital in the literature is you count the years of schooling and you try to correct them for some kind of quality. I'm going to measure it in a very different way and I'm going to measure it in a very different way by first asking the question, who has more know-how? Comparing these guys, this is an Inuit from northern Canada in, in the food industry. And here's the Inuit engaged in the construction industry. And here's the Inuit engaged in the transportation industry. And I'm going to ask, who has more know-how? This Inuit or modern man? And you should feel a little bit uncomfortable because this sounds like a poorly framed question. Because the Inuit, uh, because modern man, you know, modern man here, you know, he uses glasses, uses headphones, uses a screen, uses a computer, uses software, uses a watch. He doesn't know how to make any of that. If you put modern man here, there must be a theorem that says that he will die. <laughs> right? So, uh, you cannot really say that modern man has more know-how than the Inuit, and as a consequence, the reason why we've made so much progress in modern life is because we are so much more knowledgeable or have much more know-how than our antecedents or ancestors. What you can say, though, is that the society to which modern man belongs knows how to make more things than the society to which the Inuits belong. You can say that because in this society, somebody knows how to make watches, somebody knows how to make shirts, somebody knows how to make computers and programs and headphones and whatever. We don't. None of you do, right? Somebody does, but not us, right? So we, in modern society, we feel perfectly useless. While in Inuit society, everybody knew how to hunt, everybody knew how to fish, everybody knew how to make an igloo, everybody knew how to run a dog sled, and so on. That is, everybody had a copy of the technology of the place in their heads, while modern technology is spread out in many different heads. So modern society knows more, not because individuals know more, but because individuals know different. Societies know more because individuals know different. I think that's, in some sense, Adam Smith, when he talked about the division of labor, he should have talked about the division of knowledge, that the group can know more because each one in the group knows different. Okay. So, 
If you want to now increase knowledge, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to store it? Well, this is my employer. It was created in 1636 in this building. And then, you know, since 1636, you can guess how much more knowledge has grown. I mean, this was before Newton, before Lavoisier, before Darwin, before Einstein, before whatever, John Locke, you, you name it, right? Before everybody, right? So we now have so much more that we think we know, right? So if we're going to teach all of that, we need more space, right? And then more space, right? And then more space. But in 1636, a college degree lasted four years. Now that we know hundreds of times more, how long does a college degree last? Four years. So you're trying to grow a system with a fixed component. How do you grow the system with a fixed component? You put different bits of knowledge in different heads. So you grow the knowledge in the system, not by putting all the knowledge in each head, but by putting different bits of knowledge in different heads. Okay? And that goes to an idea we have of the person bite, that each one of us, in some sense, to a first approximation, uh, we have a certain capacity to learn. Right? Uh, you wouldn't go, I mean, you probably, I'm, I'm not sure that there's any exception to the following statement that your lawyer tends not to be your dentist, <laughs> right? Because it just takes too long to become a good lawyer to, instead of then practicing law, to spend an equivalent amount of time becoming a good dentist, right? So there's just a certain amount of know-how that we can uh, comfortably accumulate. Malcolm Gladwell says that it takes 10,000 hours to become good at something. So we don't have 10,000 hours in life to spare, right? So. Uh, so now, essentially, the way technology has grown is by putting different bits of know-how in different heads. But now to produce, if you want to use that know-how, you have to bring these heads back together. So products that are going to differ in the number of person bytes they require, that is, in the number of people with different knowledge that have to come to cooperate, okay? So, to create products that have more than one person bite, eh, you need more than one person. That's why we have firms. And in firms, you have people who know about accounting, about production, about management, about human resources, about taxes, about contracts, about et cetera, et cetera. So you need all these different areas of specialty to make an organization work. That's a, a, an organization with more person bites. So bringing these person bites together is done in networks of individuals we call firms, and because that's not enough, in networks of firms. And Ricardo Crescenzi here is doing a lot of work on global value chains and so on, which is precisely this accumulation of, of uh, you know, sticking together these bits of know-how across firms. So <clears throat> you can look at the world now in a different way and ask yourself, how many people have to collaborate to do things? This is a subsistence farming family in Ecuador. That family can make these products. Call these products sort of like a one-person bite or one-family bite products. You know, this family is self-sufficient. These families are not self-sufficient, but each one of them is in a 
in a different line of business which more or less you know fits in the family or the butcher the baker the candlestick maker for those of you who are not born in the UK that's a nursery rhyme no? so uh, now no family knows how to make these products and you might say that today no country is able to make this product because making the product requires so much disaggregated, you know, spread out know-how in the landing gear and the turbines and the avionics and the different parts of the aircraft that make it impossible to be done. You say, well, you need a, a lot of people to do this aircraft, not because you're going to make a lot of aircrafts. You would need a lot of people just if you wanted to make one aircraft. Okay? So that's one measure of the know-how intensity of these different technologies. So one simple way to capture this intuition that things are done by putting different bits of know-how together is by this metaphor of Scrabble. Metaphor of Scrabble says, uh, think of letters as like person bytes or productive capabilities of some kind and words as products. And products are done by putting together these person bytes. Okay, so if you have just one kind of letter, there aren't too many kinds of words you can make. But if I give you these three letters, now you can make four words and you can make three letter words. If I give you an extra letter, now you can make nine words and you can make four letter words. Right? And if I give you these ten letters, according to the Scrabble website, you can make 595 words. By the way, if I give you the 26 letters in the alphabet, uh, you can make you know, half a million words or whatever is in the dictionary. So, so this idea that the more letters you have, two things are happening. The more words you can put together, the more diverse your production can be. And also, the longer the words, the more complex the production that you can put together. Okay? So, um, so let's go back now to this picture and see what, what we see. And I would put it to you that what we see is that the guy on the left probably has more know-how than the guy on the right. Because the only thing the guy on the right might know how to do is just how to drive that tractor. The guy on the left, he's making his own dung, he's taking care of his own seeds, he's, he's repairing his own tools, he's taking care of his own bulls, and so on. So he's deciding when to plant. The guy on the right, he's using a tractor he doesn't know how to make, that uses gasoline, that he has no clue how to look for oil and refine it. He uses agrochemicals, uses genetically modified seeds. He doesn't really understand what the term means, right? So, so he is no genius, but he is part of a network where there are people who know about all of these things. And it is his capacity to participate in something that is mobilizing all that know-how that allows him to implement that technology. Okay, so I will put it to you that this is a short word and that's a long word. But the individual is just a letter. It's not the letter, it's the word that is making the difference. Okay? Now, this technology doesn't diffuse very quickly because obviously this guy has to be able to sell his crop outside of his village so he can bring stuff into his village but there's no road out of his village or the road doesn't operate when 
when, he, when his crop is ready or there's no storage. And if you had given him the tractor, he would not have been able to pay for the gasoline or he would not have been able to pay for the repairs, et cetera, et cetera. So that technology is not implementable in his ecosystem. Okay? But that's because you cannot put the word together. The other letters are not, are not there, cannot be mixed together. But there are, then there are some technologies that diffuse very quickly, faster than governments wished. And you know, we understand why, because this technology requires you know, less than a person bite to implement. Right? So, so it, you know, if you give a person a gun and so on, he can, he can use it in, in diverse contexts. So, the intuition I want to get out of this is the following, that we're, as we observe the world, we can ask ourselves the question, how many person bites are in different places? And in order to estimate how many person bites are in different places, we remember the first thing, that places that have more person bites should be able to make more products. With more letters, you make more words. Secondly, products that require more letters are going to be feasible in fewer places. The longer the word, the harder it is to make it, so fewer places will have what it takes to make it. So those products are going to be less ubiquitous. They're going to be made in fewer places. Countries that have more letters should be able to make longer words. That is, words that are made in fewer places. So therefore, when I look at the world, I should see a systematic relationship between how diversified these places are and how hard it is to do the things that they do. How ubiquitous are the products that, that they're doing. And you know, when we look at the world, this is what we see. On the x-axis, you see how many products a country exports. And on the y-axis, you see how many other countries export the things you export. And you see that all the rich countries are at the bottom right. They make many things and things that are done in few places. And all the poor countries are at the top left. They make few things and things that are done in many places. That's what you would expect if the guys at the right had many letters, and so they can make many words and long words, and the guys on the left have few letters, and they make few things and things that everybody can do. And if you look at the underlying data, it looks like this. The, every row here is a country. Every column here is a product. Every pixel is an, the intensity with which a country exports that product. And what you see in the data is that some countries at the top do everything, some countries at the bottom do very few things, but the countries at the bottom tend to do the things to the left, that is, the things that are done everywhere. And the countries at the top do these things too, but they do a bunch of things that are not feasible in the countries at the bottom. So it's the same shape. And this, by the way, you can take some nationally. So this is municipalities in, in Chile. Uh, and to the uh, bottom right, is Santiago and the municipalities around Santiago. And to the top left is a bunch of places in the desert and where the penguins live. Okay, um, and this is the way the data looks. It looks this triangular shape that in, it's, it's a, it seems to be a feature of the world. We looked into cities in, in Turkey, into states in Mexico, into departments in Colombia, into districts in Sri Lanka, you see the same patterns, that places seem to differ systematically in these two dimensions. And uh, I think it's a feature of the world, and you would want the theory that, that could account for that. 
So we developed a, a way based on these ideas and these matrices to estimate, if you want, to get a measure of how many letters a country has, how many person bytes a country has. And we're left with this map. It says, by just looking, and, and this is just looking at what a country exports. And exports are sort of like the things that you do well enough that other people outside your country are willing to buy from you. Okay, so it's one metric of it. Um, but it says, you know, that uh, the US and Western Europe, especially Germany, are very dark and they're very complex, but also Sweden and so on. Japan, less so China, less than China, India and so on. Uh, that Mexico is more complex than Brazil and Brazil is more complex than Chile and so on. So you pick, your, pick and choose. But the interesting thing is that there's, an in, there's a relationship by just looking at how many things you do and how many other places can do the things that you do, this index of economic complexity um, correlates with your income per capita. In blue, you have countries where um, natural resources are not very important. And you see that they, the relationship is quite good. In red, you have the countries that are rich typically in oil. And they tend to be above the blue countries, that is, they have, they're very rich for the few letters that they have, and we can guess why. Well, because they have this natural resource wealth. But if we could control for the natural resource wealth, you get this relationship, which is not bad, you know, for as, as, as lousy little theories go. There's a good relationship between, you know, the variety and complexity of the things you do and, um, and your income. Interestingly enough, eh, there's more to this graph because while all the dots don't line up nicely along the regression line, eh, you might ask yourself, are these errors in this graph just noise? Well, when we look more in detail, you'll find that down here you have India. <coughs> and this theory would say, India, why are you down there? You should be much higher up. You have the letters to be much richer. Well, guess what? India's one of the fastest, or the fastest large country, fastest growing large country in the world. We'd say India is going to where it belongs, given the letters it already has. Okay? Uh, and you have a country, say, like Greece. And you say, Greece, how the hell did you go get to be up there, right? How do you get to be so rich, given how little you know, right? <laughs> And this was done for data for 2008. And you know, Greece has been obliging. So actually, these errors are predictive of future growth, which is a very interesting first point that I'm going to come back to. That these errors are predictive of future growth. Then, uh, okay, so, so then, then I've, I've given you now a recipe for development. You need to get more letters. <clears throat> get more letters make more words and make longer words. The only problem is that in order to do that, you need to solve a chicken and egg problem. You need to solve a chicken and egg problem because typically you don't know how to do the things you don't do. And you cannot do the things you don't know how to do. You cannot make watches without watchmakers but you cannot become a watchmaker in a place that doesn't make watches. So how do you break this link? <laughs> By the way, you should have noticed that this is not a chicken, this is a rooster. 
Um, so I'm going to give you one intuition of how this process works in real life. And I have these three animals, a bear, a lion, and a zebra. And I'm going to ask you which two animals are more related to each other. Or which one is out of the group? Which one are the two more similar and which one is out of the group? I didn't tell you the criteria, right? So you might say that the lion and the zebra are from Africa, or that the zebra eats grass and the bear and the lions don't, etc. But we are going to use the Scrabble theory of development. And in the Scrabble theory of development, a zebra is just a bear with a Z. So actually, the distance between a bear and a zebra is just one letter. But the distance between a bear and a lion is four letters. Okay? So what I'm going to argue is that the way know-how know grows is by moving from things like a bear to a zebra, and it's much harder to move from things like a bear to a lion. Okay? So that's, that's the metaphor. And that's what we try to capture with this idea of the product space. The idea is the following. In this metaphor, products are like trees in the forest. Okay? And we want to know the distance between these trees in the way that the distance between a bear and a zebra is small relative to the distance between a bear and a lion. And these distances are going to shape the, determine the shape of the forest. Okay? So what we need is to create some capacity to represent technology, if you want, to represent the forest. And that's what we did with the product space here. Every circle is a product. It's connected to other products because of this, if you want, technological similarities, relatedness, that if you're able to do A, you're also able to do B. And you see, the first thing you see is that this space, this forest, is very irregular. That there are some parts of the forest that are very dense, um, products very connected. The green thing over there is... Um, is garments, the red thing is construction materials, the blue thing is machinery, the purple thing is chemicals, the light blue thing is electronics. We didn't put them there, they sort of like put themselves there by estimating the probability that if you know, if you're good at doing A, you're also good at doing B. That is, the, that there's some, something that makes you, these products related in terms of the likelihood that countries that are good at A or good at B. And then there is a periphery of products that are very poorly connected, that are very disconnected, okay? So, so that's, that's, that's a, a picture of technology. This was done with trade data. Uh, my colleague here in the audience, Frank Nefke, who's uh, the director of research at the Center for International Development, where I direct, uh, um, did this for all production. No, goods, services, and so on. It has even creative industries, so let's zoom into creative industries. You know, there are people who do radio, TV, cinema, and the links between uh, these industries is the probability that a person that has worked in one industry can also work in another industry or has worked in another industry. So there's some kind of like cognitive link that they can hire similar workers. The same person can perform in both industries. So, okay, so now that, that's a graph of technology. What is a, what is a country or what is a region? What is a city? Well, uh, a country, a region, or a city are a collection of teams that put letters together. It's a collection of, of um, 
firms that are making products or services, okay? So in this metaphor, what is a firm? A, a firm is a monkey, okay? A monkey that lives on a tree, lives off the tree, it's exploiting this product. So the question that we can ask the data is, where are your monkeys, okay? And, and, and that we can do empirically and say, okay, so I come from Venezuela. Where in, in the product space does Venezuela have monkeys? Well, the big blob at the top is the oil industry. And, you know, there's a few, a few others around, but not, not too much, compared to, say, Mexico. You see that there's a huge difference in terms of the technologies that have deployed uh, between Venezuela and Mexico in terms of the teams that are able to make things by putting person bites together in the two countries. We can do it for cities using the data that Frank Nefke put together. And this is sort of like the map of the city of London, where we have highlighted, you know, the, the circles are sized according to employment in those, in those industries compared to, say, Shanghai, where a lot of the employment is in, in manufacturing. So, so different places are going to be implementing different technologies and so on. And these technologies uh, are going to evolve because it's easier to move from bear to zebra than it is to move from bear to lion. That is said in this metaphor, it's <coughs> monkeys tend to jump short distances. Okay, so as monkeys diffuse in the forest, as firms diffuse in technology space, they tend to preferentially move towards related industries, as captured by these spaces. So we can observe these monkeys jumping. Let me compare Ghana to Thailand, two countries that started more or less at the same level of income. And Ghana actually invested more in education than Thailand and made more progress in education than Thailand. And the education in Ghana was in English. So, so you know, by that metric, Ghana should beat Thailand. But uh, Ghana uh, essentially was able to produce, in 1962, cocoa, wood, and some minerals. Thailand was able to produce more diversified agriculture, rice, corn, tubers, uh, sugarcane, rubber, etc., and some minerals. Uh, and this is where they were in the product space in 1965. So I'm going to show you a movie of the monkeys jumping, and so please pay attention to, to, to the highlighted nodes. So this is 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 2000, 2005, 2010. I don't know what you saw there, but maybe, let <laughs> me. Uh, that there were, there were all these little monkeys in the, in the, in the periphery, but suddenly uh, you get a couple of monkeys there in the garments cluster in the green right in Thailand, nothing in Ghana. And then suddenly these monkeys jump all over the garments cluster over there. And then they start to get two monkeys here in the electronics cluster to the left. And then, bingo, they just populate the whole electronics cluster here. And then they start moving to the central cluster, uh, where the machinery and, and stuff is. And, and so while in Ghana, these are exports per capita and constant dollars, the value of what they did collapsed because of the collapse in, in, in cocoa prices. But nothing new happened, while this is what happened in in Thailand, okay? So when you look at GDP per capita, they diverged. But the way that we would explain it is, is that there was a deep divergence in the capacity of these two different societies to move their productive capacity through this technological space.
Okay? Obviously, a big question is why and how and so on. I won't go into that. But very quickly, this allows us to a, a explain a growth in, uh, in, in, the, in the metrics of, of this theory. The first metric of, of you know, which countries are going to grow is, are you like India or are you like Greece? Are you below the regression line, meaning that you have more than enough letters to be richer than you are, or are you above the regression line? And the second one is how well uh, located, and this, you know, Mexico is there. You saw that Mexico had a bunch of monkeys in, in the central part of the forest, so there were many empty trees nearby. And Venezuela had very few monkeys and all of them in the periphery. So this is, uh, so, so when, this is, on the x-axis is how many letters you have, and on the y-axis is how close are your monkeys to empty trees, okay? So there are a bunch of countries that are very, have very few letters, and the monkeys are very far from empty trees. Then there are some middle countries that have intermediate level of letters, but they have monkeys in the, in, in the dense part of the forest near very many empty trees. And then there are the rich countries that have essentially, the monkeys have populated all the existing trees. So there are very few empty trees to move into. If they want to innovate, they have to do innovations, things that are new to the world, not existing technologies that you can just adopt. And here is Mexico. They have many more letters, and they're very well located in the product space. And here's Venezuela. They have very few letters, and they're very poorly located in the product space. So, so this gives us sort of like a two-by-two two matrix, if you want. Uh, on the x-axis, is do you have more than enough letters to be richer than you are or not? Say, if you're to the right, if you're, if you're like India, if you're to the left, you're like Greece. Right? So you need more letters to be richer. And on the high, low uh, y-axis is do you have many empty trees to jump to or not? So that can you move easily from bear to zebra? Or are you trapped in a place where the next tree involves four letters distance? Right? Okay. So, so there are some countries that have more than enough letters to be richer than they are. And on top of that, if they need more letters, they can jump to nearby trees and just get one letter at a time. Okay? Then there are other countries that have more than enough letters to be richer than they are, but it's hard for them to get more. So they should do more with the letters that they have. Right? Um, and then there are some countries that need more letters, but it's easy, relatively easy for them to get those letters. And then there are countries that need more letters, but it's hard for them to get more letters. So unless they put the monkeys on a helicopter or something, you know, the monkeys will be, will be trapped. Okay? We can take this to the data, and you know, so we can quickly diagnose what is the technological challenge that different countries are facing. Okay? And uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not very much in favor of you know, just um, finding lists of things that all countries should do because all countries are very different and this is a diagnostic tool that allows to capture some of the differences between countries in this space, in this, in this space. Okay, so, so then the question is how do we get, how do we get more, more letters? How, how do we get the first copy of a letter? And here, this line of work, which I'm going to summarize very quickly because I'm, I'm late, is, um, 
is based on the following simple intuition. It is hard to move know-how into brains. But it is much easier to move brains. And this intuition that it's much easier to move brains than it is to move know-how into brains because according to Maxwell, Malcolm Gladwell, as we said before, it takes 10,000 hours. It doesn't take 10,000 hours to move around the globe. So, so uh, you might say, oh, what a brilliant idea. Well, I'm not claiming originality. It's such an obvious idea that the world must have discovered it. And as a consequence, we can see it in history that uh, the founders of Ford, General Motors, and, uh, and Chrysler all worked for Oldsmobile. This is a point that was made by Stephen, Stephen Klepper, uh, who documented sort of like these, these um, uh, spin-offs from firms where you, know, you, get, you acquire the know-how in one place, you move, and you bring the know-how with you. Same thing in Silicon Valley, that if you look at the genealogy of firms in Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley was moved to California because Shockley, who was at uh, the Bell Labs, moved to California with a team. Then the team left him and created Fairchild Semiconductors, and then that led to Intel and so on and so on. There's a personal relationship between people acquiring knowledge in one firm, moving it to the next firm. And this has been documented for Bangladesh, where the origin of the textile industry in Bangladesh, the garment industry in Bangladesh, is the fact that a Korean company took 126 workers for a six-month training program in Korea. When they went back, 56 of those 126 workers created their own firms after a little while. And those 56 firms today are the core of the competitive industries in the country. And they're like three times more productive than the rest of the firms. And that's what created the boom in garment exports in, in Bangladesh. Uh, we have a bunch of examples in history, like the, uh, the um, revocation of the Edict of Nantes, where uh, Louis XIV kicked out the Huguenots in, in, uh, in France, and we know where they left. And by the way, a bunch of them came to Spitalfields, which I understand is a part of London now, and they brought the... Um, Huh? Not, not flax. Uh, silk. Silk. Silk manufacturing got to London thanks to courtesy of King Louis XIV. Um, and, and we know that, for example, the, uh, the, um, uh, the elector of Brandenburg um, um, passed an edict saying, we are happy to receive Huguenots. And so a bunch of Huguenots moved there, and the people in this paper published in the American Economic Review by Hornung, it describes how the industrial development of Prussia and it was related to the absorption of these Huguenots that brought with them their know-how and that know-how developed in, in their new places. So uh, we did a paper, again, with Frank Nefke here about uh, the... Um, uh, the reindustrialization of East Germany. And we asked ourselves, okay, in East Germany, you know, at the time of transition, manufacturing output collapsed, but afterward it recovered, and it recovered in new industries, in industries that were new to 
East Germany, and we asked ourselves, how can you start doing things you don't know how to do? Well, guess what? They hired people who did know how to do. And the people who did know how to do came from West Germany. So a lot of the unsung story of the recovery of output in East Germany is not just that you, know, you improved institutions and so on. It's that you brought the know-how in people's heads. So I, this is a very important point that a know-how moves in people's brains. And it didn't move to East Germany before that because there was a wall. Take the wall away, then suddenly technology moves, right? And, and a, a, this is another paper on return migration. So bad news for Albania. They had a bunch of people working in Greece, and the crisis in Greece meant a bunch of people returning to Albania, 5% of the Albanian labor force. What would you expect would happen? Well, obviously, you have unskilled labor coming from, uh, from Greece that is going to cause either a 5% increase in unemployment or a decline in wages. No? Well, you got an, a reduction in unemployment and an increase in wages for the non-migrants. So how would you explain that? Well, the way we explain it is that the people who came back from Greece came back with different know-how that was not there before. And as a consequence, uh, that know-how suddenly became com complementary to other skills that were there. They, in particular, they learned in Greece how to make greenhouses and greenhouse agriculture. So they went back and created their own greenhouses, and that actually was a positive shock, not a negative shock to Albania. We have similar uh, st uh, studies by Dario uh, Diodato showing them that return migration of Mexicans back to Mexico had positive effects on the industries with, in which they had experience back in the US. So when they go back, you, we see growth in the industries that were positively uh, impacted by, by, um, by, uh, uh, by, by the increase of a worker with know-how from the North. I wanted to cite uh, Ricardo's work here, again with Frank, which is the question, how do places start patenting? How do places start patenting? How, how do you start patenting in the world? And, and what they find is that um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of places that now have started patenting since uh, the year 2000. And they look into, okay, who started patenting in the year 2000? What's the story there? And what they find is that the place got infected with a patenting virus by some foreign entity that comes in and starts patenting there. And after they start patenting there, then other people imitate, copy, or do something. So, so the place got into the patenting business through some kind of international contagion. And this is sort of like the key uh, graph in their paper. Uh, the treatment is somebody comes from abroad to do R&D in your place to produce a patent, and then suddenly everybody in your place starts doing patents. So, now, this says that if you want development, you have to bring in the missing letters so that you can better use the letters you already have to make longer words. Now, uh, the developing world has a radically different uh, intensity of foreigners. For example, in Singapore, something like 45% of the people in Singapore are foreign-born. Okay? The U.S. is at 14%, and 
and they are complaining, right? <laughs> but in the developing world, so the one out of 2.4 people in Singapore are foreign-born. One out of 24 in Panama are foreign-born. One of 200 out of 240 in Mexico are foreign-born. And one of, out of 534 in India are foreign-born. So, so the exposure of these places to just people from abroad, by the way, Raise your hand if you were not born in the UK. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> I rest my case. 52% of the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are foreigners. But foreigners as defined as people from outside of the US, not people from outside of California. And California is a country of 40 million people, right? So a lot of this technology involves a lot of brain movements. People moving, bringing their know-how. Now, very few are going to the developing world. And you might say, well, is it because it's an unpleasant place and so on? Or, or is it because they don't let them in? Well, it's interesting to know a little bit about, uh, about their policies. So for example, in Ireland, it's illegal to hire more than 50% non-EU citizens. Okay, Not more than 50% not Irish, non-EU citizens, okay? okay? In Kazakhstan, it's 30%. In Egypt, Guatemala, and Panama, it's a maximum of 10% per firm, okay? In Cambodia, it's 6%. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's 4%. And in Ghana, Mozambique, Nigeria, and Thailand, it's either one or two Absolute number, one person or two people, depending on the country, okay? So, summing up, the secret of development is technological adoption. A major obstacle to technological adoption is the spread of collective know-how. If it were just to move one person, it would be easy, but you need to move whole teams to be able to do things. You need to, uh, um, all the letters that go into Technology adoption moves preferentially, not ideally, not, not that, preferentially, it moves preferentially towards, call it the adjacent possible. It, it preferentially moves from bear to zebra. It's very hard for technological adoption to move from bear to lion because too many, too many missing, missing letters, too many missing capabilities. Human mobility is key to accelerate technological diffusion. And human mobility is highly constrained, especially in developing countries where it is probably most needed. So I'm going to end with an epilogue, which could be another lecture. So if one day, maybe a few years, you want to invite me back, I'll talk about this. Why the hell do countries that could very productively use people with different skills that are complementary to the skills that are at home, why don't they let them in? No, complementary means things like coffee and sugar. Substitute means things like coffee and tea, right? The more coffee you have, the more sugar you want, right? And the more coffee you have, the less tea you want. So the question is, are these foreigners that might come in that are being restricted, are they like coffee so that they would demand more of your local sugar? Or are they like a coffee that would demand less of your local tea, okay? And I'd put it to you, all the evidence we've put together in, we've done very detailed analysis on Panama to convince the government that 
the foreigners that are being restricted are actually complements of locals and that uh, when you let them in, you get more local employment at higher wages and so on. But anyway, we don't let them in because this country should be run for us and not for them, okay? Us is a certain imagined community. So this is a country, this is our country, and the question is, so it should be run for us. And the state is supposed to act on behalf of us. Uh, and the sense of us that many countries have is constrained by all the heterogeneity they have to deal with. Uh, raise your hand if you come from a country where there's at least, say, 10% of the people uh, who don't have the dominant language as their mother tongue. So, so you see, there are many, many countries. For example, in India, the census recognizes 1,640 different languages. In Indonesia, there are 700 different languages, and so on. And then there are religious differences. And then there are racial differences. And on top of all of these things, they want to create a sense of us. And the best way to create a sense of us is a sense of them. So if development is going to happen, it will require a sense of us that has to abide by two constraints. The first one is that it has to be deep enough to agree on what the state should do. What are the complex public goods that the state should offer? Okay, you know, what language are we going to speak? What, uh, what's going to be taught in schools? What kind of pension system we're going to have? Uh, where do we put the rail network and so on and so forth? So us, we have to, us has to decide on these things, but broad enough to allow economies of scale so that the place is not just, you know, the People's Republic of Cambridge, they call where Harvard is, you know? So um, it, you, you want economies of scale, you know, you're all, except for Britain, trying to get into the EU, right? Because you think that there are economies of scale uh, and the mixing of new forms of know-how, that it's sufficiently open so that you can allow, allow that diversity to happen. And many countries, I think, are paying a very hefty price for not wanting to be more open uh, to others, especially in the developing world. And I would put it to you that this is probably the biggest $500 bill lying on the ground of the development effort. Thank you very much. So thank you, Ricardo. I'm always fascinated by scholars who can convey like very complex messages in such uh, a clear and engaging fashion. So we have now uh, some limited time for questions. Um, so please raise your hand. Uh, wait until you have a microphone. Uh, introduce yourself. And remember that questions end with a question mark uh, and are usually short statements. <laughs> OK? Uh, so we have two gentlemen at the back. Hello, Ricardo. Leandro from Argentina, studying here at Birbeck University. Uh, what about poverty? Is reduction of poverty a cause or a consequence of development? You know, this is a um, great question. So the way I think of it is that you know, poverty is, is a natural state of affairs. That is, uh, incomes per capita were very low before development, right? So, so the, uh, we started by 
incomes that were low everywhere, if you want. And, and um, what has happened is this accumulation of letters in some parts of the world that allow those parts to be more productive, to make longer words, to make more words, to uh, operate with more knowledge because you have put different person bytes in different heads. So, so there's more implemented technologies in different brains, if you want. Okay, so, um, so I would put it to that poverty is the absence of these things. So when we did work, for example, on Mexico, um, and tried to explain these huge differences in income per capita across, across Mexico, the dominant explanation is that in the poor places, they live in subsistence agriculture, they plant corn and beans for subsistence, and, and, and that's a one-person bite operation, right? And in, um, in Querétaro, they make airplanes, right? So, so if, if the problem of poverty is the problem of, of not your letter being lousy. We did a study to show that the Chiapaneco, we did a study on Chiapas, the poorest state in Mexico. Why are Chiapanecos poor? Well, we showed that when a Chiapaneco works outside of Chiapas, he's indistinguishable from a Mexican working outside of his state, controlling for whatever we can control. So there's nothing wrong with the Chiapanecos. There's something wrong with Chiapas. And what's wrong with Chiapas is that everybody else has the same letter. But if you put the guy in a place that has other letters, more combinations become possible. So I would put it to you that the attack on poverty has to be about including people into the networks in which they can combine their letters with other letters. And that has, implies a very big agenda of accessibility of the labor market, a, a agenda of, of including them in, in the transportation network, in the energy network, in, in a bunch of networks that allows them to combine their letters with with other letters. So I think that there's a natural, this theory would generate a natural theory of poverty and a natural theory of inequality. Actually, the fact that this Scrabble metaphor, this complementarity of the inputs of production is a big machine for inequality. Because in the places that have many letters not only can do great things, but they can also extract more value from any extra letter. So there are increasing returns to put more letters in the places that already have a lot of letters. And there's very low bank to putting a few letters in the places that have very few letters. So, so that's why economic activity tends to concentrate so, so much. And that's why you know, the inequality challenge has been so, so large. There. Hi, um, Christina from Venezuela. I'm an LSE alumni. I wanted to get your view on blockchain in developing countries. On what? On blockchain. Blockchain. In, yeah, in developing countries in terms of opportunities and challenges, because I see how it can give a country more letters and also be better placed. Well, if I, I understand, blockchain would be a way, it's sort of like a distributed mechanism to create a property rights regime. Also, that transactions can be done more securely and so on. Um, and it sort of like resonates with an idea a la Hernando de Soto that if you have to give <coughs> property rights to people, you'll change the world. And I think that um, 
property rights are probably a good thing, definitely, no. Uh, and secure transaction is probably a good thing. But in a place that doesn't have know-how, like for example, people were very optimistic about micro-lending. Because with micro-lending, you give people access to capital. But by definition, if it's micro, it's kind of like a one-person byte operation. Well, but a one-person byte operation probably does not generate $2 a day in income. So, and if the only thing you know how to do is the same cookies that your neighbors know how to do, as everybody started making the same cookie, the price of cookie collapses and the stuff doesn't go uh, where it should go. So, if for the places where a secure technology to exchange property rights and so on is not there, it might do some good. But if you think that the binding constraint is collective know-how, I don't think it's going to change the world dramatically. But every time there's a new technology, we need to explore its possibilities. Let's go to the back there. There you go. It's there. There at the back with the bridge. Yeah. Oh. She's trying to. Easier, easier. easier. <laughs> it was easier. Hi, um, good evening. Thank you for the really engaging talk. Um, I have two questions. The first, regard, uh, the first one is regarding the two times two matrix. And I'm just wondering for those um, countries that are in the worst of category, are they doomed? What if one country doesn't have many ladders and none of those ladders are in the denser parts of the forests? What do they do? And the second question, I'm wondering what do you think of um, China's model of um, establishing special economic zones? Do you think it's replicable? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so, so to the first question, um, you know, if you are in a country that is in the let it be kind of space, uh, you know, a light touch policy might be okay because a lot of things are going to be happening sort of anyway, and if you get a little bit out of the way, laissez-faire might, might be okay. If you're at the opposite end of sort of like bridge over troubled waters, if you don't... Uh, coordinate, the market will not be able to coordinate. There are too many missing inputs, uh, too, ma too, uh, too many uh, missing things for anything to happen. So those are the places where you want to probably have a little bit more of a, of a dirigiste flavor, if you want, in the sense of at least saying that maybe if you cannot put all the letters everywhere because you're too poor, you cannot put, say, roads, water, infrastructure, this, that, and the other everywhere, communications, etc. Uh, you should at least try to put all letters somewhere. And maybe that is the idea of a special economic zone, right? It is, it is the idea of saying, look, in, if we're going to get into garments, we need to have a place where workers can go in and out we need to have a place where materials can go in and out. We need to have a place that has access to electricity, that has access to water. Uh, and uh, those places are not many in the country because infrastructure is so lousy, etc. So let's at least choose one place where these things might happen. And then let's see if they do, right? So if the, now, special economic zones is a very dirty term in the sense that people have used it for radically different things. They are special in terms of uh, infrastructure treatment, or they're special in terms of tax treatment, 
or they are special in terms of labor regulation treatment and so on. So I'm not so sure that you know, we, we have to make those specific distinctions. But I think that in, in, the, in the countries in the four, fourth quadrant or the regions in the fourth quadrant, it would require a little bit more of what we call strategic bets. They're bets, they, you might lose them, but in the absence of those bets, you might not get enough coordination to make, to make things happen. Uh, and, uh, from, and then you asked about China, and I, and I think that China very wisely started to, uh, to do with these special economic zones. All these laws had the word, I don't know if it was experimental or pilot, etc. They tried these things out, tried to learn from these uh, experiments and um, to see if, 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 if they would happen, if they, if they really could you know, attract business to, uh, to manufacture in China and those particular places. And, and they learned a lot from the process, saw, saw what worked, what didn't work, and, and, and I think there's a, a lot to learn from that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm even a, a friend of industrial, special economic zones or industrial zones, even as uh, experiments, right? As saying, gee, I don't know what's the problem here, why things are not happening, but let me try at least something in a limited way in some part of the country, and then, and then let's see if it works. Interestingly, in Panama, they created some special economic zones where the privilege was immigration policy. They allowed you to have more than 10% foreigners in a firm. And you know, in one of these, it's called the Punta, no, Panama Pacifico. Uh, they allowed more, more than 10%. And guess what? It went to 18%. But they attracted a hell of a lot of companies and activity there, uh, relaxing that particular constraint. And now we're working with the government to see if we can relax immigration restrictions on all of the country. So you don't have to only be in the, in the special economic zone to benefit from that. And, and I think that they didn't design it as an experiment but it ended up being as a learning opportunity for the country. We think about burning question from the top. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Natalia from Venezuela as well. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you. Um, on, the, on the fourth quadrant countries that you were talking about just now, I was wondering what you see as the role of the government apart from knocking down barriers for of entry of foreigners, etc. How, how involved do you see the government in, in incentivizing these industries? You said you were from Venezuela. Yeah. Well, you know, in some countries, you know, monkeys have trouble moving from tree to tree because the trees are far away and so on. But in other countries, there's a guy with a shotgun. <laughs> and, and, you know, whenever, you know, he's, he's shooting monkeys, right? So, so you know, it's no, it's no scientific puzzle why Venezuela is collapsing, right? So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a human catastrophe, it's an incredible drama, but, but it's no scientific puzzle. It, it is the logical consequence of doing the things that are being done to the Venezuelan economy. So I would say um, that's a, a, an, an implosion, by the way, Venezuela, my guess, unfor unfortunately, is that it's going to be probably uh, the worst uh, economic collapse ever outside of war. 
uh, and uh, and there's a, right now a massive exodus of people. There's a, an estimate done with a survey in survey instrument in Venezuela that estimated there are four million Venezuelans that have left the country. So and and those are probably biased towards the higher skilled, or at least it started with a higher skilled. Now it's become a very massive phenomenon. So so we are observing in some sense a development backwards. So, you know, companies are unable to find accountants, auditors, uh, IT people, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of, sort of like a shock to, to the stock of, of skills in the country. So, you know, some countries, you know, you just have to stop shooting or you have to shoot the shooter or something. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but uh, in, in other places, it's more challenging. I've worked on many countries that have, you know, Governments that are really trying, uh, that are really trying, and it's hard. You know, I, I worked in, in you know, among the 40 plus countries that I worked uh, you know, in, in many of them. I remember in El Salvador, for example. By the way, Growth Diagnostics was born in El Salvador because uh, I organized this team that went to El Salvador to figure out what to do in El Salvador, and, and we ended up having a discussion of what we thought was the binding constraint and then we sort of like generalized the method uh, and uh, you know uh, the, the first conversation I had with the minister is look they told us trade reform we did Chilean style trade reform they told us financial reform we did Chilean style financial reform we did social security reform Chilean style we did um, uh, educational reform Chilean style why are we not growing like Chile and to which I answered to him, you know, if you keep on reforming Chilean style, one of these days you will find copper. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's very interesting that this idea that, that production, the growth, which is the growth of production, has absolutely nothing to do with production. It has to do with all these rules, and you can, you can go taking reforms without asking yourself the question, what is constraining production? What is constraining the absorption of technologies and so on and so forth? So it's just imitating whatever everybody else does does not mean, you know, I don't want to offend you, but if you buy a Rolex, you will not look like George Clooney. <laughs> okay, um, our time, unfortunately, is up. Uh, let me thank Ricardo for his inspiring talk. And thank you all uh, for being here tonight. Thank you very much.